A consequential one-word response from President Biden making major headlines during his inaugural trip to Asia as Commander-in-Chief. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. So, why all this talk about Taiwan? For most of us, Taiwan's a curiosity. It seems to flash across our screens every so often and sometimes comes up in a presidential debate or among panelists on cable news. And while the destruction being wrought in Ukraine is a completely understandable distraction from what's unfolding in the Taiwan Strait, the reality is that the two flashpoints are inextricably linked. And like Ukraine, Taiwan's been on the U.S. State Department's radar for a very long time. But understand, for China, the issue of Taiwan is as important as anything on their docket. The the idea of one China is at the heart of their conception as a nation. So if you are going to upend this understanding, you have to have thought through what are the consequences are because the Chinese will not treat that uh, the way they'll treat some other issues. I will do what it takes to help Taiwan defend herself. And the Chinese must understand that. I believe that both China and Taiwan understand this. We have dispatched people today to press that case. This is something that that we don't want to see escalate. You know and I know the one stumbling block to totally normalize relations. That's the question of Taiwan. Kind of like listening to a bar fight start in reverse, right? Well, while the Taiwan problem's been simmering below the surface of international diplomacy for decades, today, things appear to be coming to a head. At the 19th annual Chinese Communist Party Congress in October of 2017, China's president, Xi Jinping, wrote his own name into the Chinese constitution. In doing so, he elevated himself to the stature of the party's founder, Chairman Mao Zedong. A year later, he abolished term limits on the presidency, and now he's in charge for life. And he wants Taiwan back. In a stunning move, China has flown nearly 150 warplanes into Taiwan's air defense zone, sparking growing fears of a potential conflict. The U.S. has been using its Pacific fleet to showcase its own strengths. The USS John McCain cruised to the west of the island last week, the guided missile destroyer passing through the Taiwan Strait, right between the mainland and Taiwan. Sovereignty over Taiwan has changed hands between external parties so frequently over the past hundred years that it's become popular to describe the island as a pawn in a broader game for Asian supremacy. And while the chess analogy is a good one, in reality, Taiwan looks less like a pawn than it does like a critical space in the middle of a very crowded board. 
So what's driving this deterioration? Well, a lot of things I suspect, but at its core is an unstable diplomatic solution to the problem of contested Taiwanese sovereignty, which the Americans call strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity is an uncodified, jerry-rigged system of take-me-at-my-word promises between the world's two largest powers and a constellation of smaller states scattered all around the Asia-Pacific. Among the largest Western allies in the region is Australia. And as China and the US size one another up, Australia finds itself caught between the bluster of its sole security benefactor and its largest trading partner. Understanding these bilateral tensions between nation states is crucial to getting a handle on the Taiwan problem. And our first guest today is someone who spent years at the intersection of American, Australian and Chinese diplomacy. And that's the Honourable Joe Hockey, who served as Australia's ambassador to the United States during the Obama and Trump administrations. And prior to that was Australia's treasurer. And he's our first guest here today. After Joe, we're going to look at the equation from the other side of the table and sit down with former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the US Treasury, Bob Donor. Bob served under five consecutive US administrations and he personally established the bilateral economic dialogue with China that became the main vehicle for Sino-American diplomacy during the Bush and Obama administrations. I'm Jack Wright. I'm an Australian journalist based in New York City and a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review. And this is episode two of my new podcast, The Intersection. Conversations on how the intersection between economics and politics is shaping our world. So let's get into it. Uh, just a note, I've reordered this first interview slightly. Joe and I spoke for about 90 minutes and we covered a lot of detail on Australian politics at the top, given that we've just come out of an election and a change of government. But I've moved most of that discussion to the end of the interview as it's probably not of interest to anyone who isn't Australian, but it's there at the end for anyone who's interested. Yeah. G'day, Joe. How are you? Nice to see you. Very well, thanks. How's things? Oh, not bad. Righto. Just want to say something and check that we're on. Joe Hockey, um, President, Bondi Partners, and all-round ordinary guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's begin. Joe, thanks so much for um, for having me in. Uh, Great, Jack, to be with you. Yeah, thanks very much. So we're going to focus in on Asian security today um, from the lens of your experiences, both the Treasurer of Australia and the former Ambassador to the United States. I I've noticed a few times in the past when you've been asked about China in general, you've sort of retold a story about the first time that you went to China um, when you are a teenager, I believe. Um uh, you know, they hadn't seen a, a, a Western white guy before. And I remember hearing you talk once about people coming up and, you know, squeezing your cheeks <laughs> in yes, Tiananmen right. Square. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. but you know, you, you then compared that to when you returned to, to China um, as a diplomat. Or as treasurer. As, tre well, as treasurer. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that you remarked on the comparison between the two directly to your Chinese hosts. So if you were to extend that, um, comparison to incorporate a third data point being today, if you look at China today, um, what are your observations about how the trajectory of China's growth and the character of their foreign policy has changed since that time when you visited when you were treasurer? So the challenge, you know, with, with China today is that Beijing 
uh, is um, controlling uh, foreign policy and, you know, macro settings. And in truth, I think they rub up against uh, what China always has been, which is a you know a a, a nation built on enterprise, innovation, self sufficiency, um, and and an expansionary look at the world. I mean, you know, people say China was closed for a long period of time and so on, mm. but that's almost out of character. For you look at China over thousands of years, yeah, it's, it's a trading nation. It's a trading kingdom, nation. Yeah. It's a bracing nation, and and. You know, there is a strong sense of family and a strong sense of community. Uh, and what's happened is that the Chinese Communist Party, you know, which took over, you know, China at one of its weakest moments, and certainly after, you know, a horrendous war with, with, with Japan and so on, mm-hmm. and then a, a civil war, um, you know, they, they, they basically managed to convince uh, the Chinese people that, they had saved them, uh, and that they were the only solution. Right. Uh, and I think for a long period of time, right up until you know President Xi has consolidated his power, um, you know, Chinese China's been you know globally focused, outward looking, right. and now it's outward controlled. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, it does feel like in the last say five years, there's been a pivot in terms of the sort of audacity with which um, China pursues some of its geopolitical goals in Asia. And, um, you know- That I, hasn't been the Chinese people. That's been That's, the, le- that's, that's the, the leadership. leadership. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so but the, the leadership does certainly feel, um, you know, newly invigorated in terms of, of pursuing its own goals um, unapologetically. Mm. So, you know, I wonder if that, does that change the diplomatic calculus? I mean, you're not in the room anymore directly, but like you, you would have a handle on what what approach would a, would Australian diplomats be taking with China now versus you know five years ago? Do we have to be firmer? You know, the, <clears throat> um, China. You know what's important to China, the you know to the Chinese leadership is uh, you know face and future, and. Uh, and and they're very closely linked. In terms of face, it is about being a. They see themselves as as an equal superpower to the United States, and arguably with you know four and a half five times the population of the United States, arguably the the, the superpower or the bigger superpower. The um, and of course they constantly feel as though they're threatened because. You know, the theory according to Joe here is this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Russia and China, you know, huge nations crossing many time zones like the United States. Mm. Um, all three nations had horrendous revolutionary wars. And then not long after, they were followed by arguably even more gruesome civil wars. And what happened was because the countries had been built on a culture and a fear of the external with the Revolutionary War and the internal, the Civil War. America went one way and built a constitution 
that basically guaranteed the freedom of individuals with a Bill of Rights. And, and so people always hate Washington, but Washington's unable to control them the way Moscow or Beijing. Yeah, that's the trade-off, right? That's the trade-off. And so Moscow and Beijing are, you know, they fear not only the global mm. threat, but also the external threat, but also the, the internal, internal threat. Absolutely. And they've got a different way of dealing with it. And what's happening is, you know, a lot of commentators are trying to turn the United States into a crippled, you know, uh, old power. But in fact, what we saw, for example, on January 6th was the Constitution worked. Mm. The system worked. It was under massive threat. There was a, it was an insurrection. There was a, a president that was clearly trying to rip up an election campaign. And, of course, we've seen the president in Russia rip up democracy. We've seen the president in China rip up whatever was there of the fabric of democracy. But in the United States, it did not work. That's true. That's a very good observation, isn't it, that it's the one place where when you Look at it comparatively with those other mega states that it worked. The it rules, worked. The rules and it, worked. And the rules worked because, yeah. you know, it, it, it was a different fabric. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are other elements of, of what the Chinese are doing domestically, which, which perhaps, um, you know, are getting harder and harder to, I won't say look the other way on, but for the international community to tolerate. So the obvious one is the subjugation of the Uyghurs in oh, sure. Xinjiang. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's all sorts Where of Where I might add the attitude of Pakistan and a whole lot of Islamic nations has been absolutely god-awful and appalling. Really? I mean, well, why haven't they stood up? I mean, Imran Khan, for all, all the sanctimonious lecturing in the West. Um, He's had a bit on recently. Well, you know, and deservedly <laughs> so. I mean, he he had the opportunity to, to stand up for the Uyghurs and, and you know, they've, they've, there's been massive amount of silence. So, anyway, that's by the by. That's the one. But no, I mean, I just think, do you, do you sense that the international community, like, does this, as this grows and as the UNHRC formally condemns what's going on in Xinjiang as a, as a attempted genocide, like, does this matter? And, and it's a bit of a loaded question because I, I wrote an op-ed on this in the Australian Financial Review um, late last year and I interviewed Max Borkus, the US ambassador in China, who I'm sure you know. Yeah. And... He basically said to me that they just don't care at all about any attempt for Western diplomats to engage them on things that happen onshore domestically. So, you know, an attempt to engage on the Uyghurs or to engage on the social credit system, you know, which is, yeah. looks pretty horrifying. Yeah. Like his response was that you, you find once you get into these rooms that, that they just don't care. Now, obviously, you, you weren't the ambassador in China, so you have a different experience. But is that, is that, the, is that what people think? Well, you think the everyday people don't care or the The, the, po the politicians. Uh, so when, when they sit down, Borges gave an example, like if he sits down in a room with a senior bureaucrat and he says, okay, we've got five things on the agenda and one of them is what are you doing in Xinjiang or, you know, Hong Kong or pick one. Um, and they just... They just don't answer and just move on. Like it's not even, he, he, he described a, a conversation which isn't happening at all. And I just wondered if that's what people kind of expect from states like China and Russia at the diplomatic level. Because not many of us get to sit in those conversations. Look, they do care diplomatically. That, that, again, it comes down to face, face and future. So the future of China is the Communist Party and what's in the best interest of the Communist Party. And the face is not to get a lecture from you know, countries that they themselves have 
you know, a checkered history in, you know, civil rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. Right. The Chinese would say, well, you know, what happened to the Indian population? How about, how did slavery go for you? Yeah, sure. So they. So it's, I think that that feeds into the sort of perception that there's a, a large dose of hypocrisy and there is to some degree a large dose of hypocrisy from outside nations about mm. about human rights in China. Yeah. That's not to say they haven't got egregious, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, faults to, to pay a hefty price for. But, you know, I, I, is it I, what keeps them sleepless at night? It's is, not that. It's not that. It is whether they're, they're going to have an insurrection because people can't get food or um or uh, you know or um can't can't see the kids i mean yeah. you know really interesting insight in china was when the malaysian plane went down in the indian ocean mm-hmm. and i was treasurer and national security committee under tony abbott and president xi was ringing tony abbott on a very regular basis <laughs> and a very regular basis because he was under massive domestic pressure to find the plane was a lot of Chinese nationals on board. So. And, and it was their children. Yeah. And okay. the, you cannot for a single second One underestimate exactly <laughs> yeah. how important their children are because they're not, it's not only the one-child policy, but it is also the only future for a lot of people and there's yeah. no, you know, social safety net and that child could feed the village and et cetera, et cetera, right? So the, the moments that I've seen China genuinely at its weakest and not the geopolitical events. They are firstly when there was that baby infant formula contamination. Um, um, what was it? Mangyu. You remember? Yeah, yeah. And, and that remember. was a moment of massive vulnerability. The second, you know, vulnerability was that moment when the Malaysian plane went down with all those Chinese nationals. Yeah. And there was a dead set equivalent of panic in Beijing really about, about the reaction. Uh, and then you could go on, you know, the third might have been more recently where they were locking up communities and people couldn't get food, but there was a total media blackout. Yeah, the lockdown. You know, in. It, it, yeah, that's right. And and it comes back to the importance of family and the importance of, you know, the next generation. And, and so China, they're the things that are a risk to modern China, yeah. uh, not, not the geopolitical threats. What a well, um, so so I take that on board. It's probably a good time to talk about the risks of of a flashpoint around Taiwan, though. So, how how worried are you um, on the spectrum of not at all to it's going to happen um, in terms of you know a, a shooting conflict in the Taiwan Strait or or Straits diplomacy in general leading to some sort of a geopolitical flashpoint in the region? So. Uh, I think there will be some confrontation over Taiwan in the next 10 years. I'd be surprised if there wasn't. What it looks like is 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 very hard to predict. Um, you know, it's quite interesting that in, in President Biden's head, he knows exactly how to react with military force. Everyone pulls him back like a, a Manchu court, in, if you like, which is quite pathetic, but he's... He's creating enough uncertainty, and particularly in relation to the reaction on Ukraine. Um, you know, the United States is strong when the president is strong. The United States is weak when the president is weak.
Uh, I mean, it's obviously more than that, but that's very heavily influences. Uh, you know, there's been a great debate about whether Putin would have invaded Ukraine when Trump was president, and he obviously didn't. Would he, if he would he have invaded if he was still there? My view is no, he wouldn't have, because Trump was quite unpredictable, yeah. uh, and and could have reacted in a very adverse way, which would have been, right. you know, a, a massive challenge for Russia. So it's it's a bit the same with Taiwan. You know, if they see a window of opportunity, they'll take it. But uh, the, I think they need to be very careful, and I think they'll be more careful following. Yeah, that's interesting. And w- when you say more careful, is that just because the Western response has been so strong and comprehensive and unilateral? Yeah, so it's really, and, you know, and everyone says it's not. There's nothing newsworthy in this statement, but like it is amazing the galv- how how a bad guy can galvanize. The world. Well, but also we're in a political environment where you want to have an enemy. Yeah. Because that keeps. Well, if you can have one that doesn't sit in the same legislature as well, you, then how good, happy right? Days. It's <laughs> us, Boris Johnson, you know. I mean, Margaret Thatcher did it, you know, the Falklands. Poor old Falklands, right? In Argentina. But, you know, it is that that is the way of the world. I mm. mean, they're, they're, most leaders would rather have an external threat yeah. than an internal threat. Well, and if you want to get really deeply, you know, philosophical about it, it's not that hard to intuitively say that a lot of the things that had become the focal point in Western politics pre the invasion of Ukraine, which sounded a lot like noise a lot of the time, like that, that probably comes from a period of extended stability and comfort in Western countries, right? Oh, of course. Prosperity masks a whole lot of things. Yeah. And and, like, and, and no, no place more than China. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, because people will forgive Beijing mm. for taking away their liberties if they, you know, feel as though they are wealthy and, right. you know, they've got prosperity and jobs and healthcare and, yeah. you know, it's amazing how, I mean, for God's sake, Melbourne gave up. What was it? Over two hundred days of lock lockdown. Yeah, I mean, what the hell were they thinking? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Compared to, I think the most in the United States was like fifty five days or something. I like. mean, the lockouts here. So, like, like you, I lived here through the states um, throughout COVID. So, I moved here in twenty fifteen, and I was in London for five years before that, and Hong Kong for two years before that. So, mm. I've been away for a long time, and um, but. The the lockdowns in Australia, because I went back um, and did the quarantine and everything, were so much more restrictive and well-policed than, than – I mean, here, even when it was the end of day stuff and you walked down the streets and there was no one around, there weren't people telling you to go back inside if you did go for a walk in the park and stuff like that, certainly not in New York City. No, and Washington was pretty punitive and they, they – you know, I remember when they closed the parks, which was just ridiculous. But Yeah. Um, but, you know, Florida did all right. I mean, it's – you know, I'm not saying everything was perfect and, and even now, you know, there'll be a lot of history appropriately written about it. Yeah, right. But, you know, I just – I, I'm, I'm just – Surprised there wasn't an insurrection in Melbourne. I mean, yeah, you know, and, and in particular, I mean, it was bad enough in Sydney. I had American friends of mine saying to me, you know, and they don't read the SMH or mm. the Age or whatever. Like that, it was news here. That how oh, yeah, how well, draconian, right? Like, and and people were like, "This is what can go wrong." Exactly, I remember people yeah. saying that. Yeah, and and you know, it did for China as well. By the 
way. I mean, yeah, they um, got it wrong too. And it may, they may do it again. Yeah. You know, if you're worried about inflation, the yeah. main thing you've got to look at is whether China locks down again. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest threat to, you know, security. Of- well, so that, that's a good segue to, to think about. Um, so you've spoken before about how the burden of things like tariffs or sanctions programs, so this could be pertaining to Ukraine or China or something else, you know, need to be shared amongst the Western actors that deploy them. And, and I, I remember you speaking once about how um, President Obama asked you to stop the Australian um, companies yeah, from, selling, yeah. from oh. selling iron ore to China. Mm. Um, and from, from memory, but I might have my timing wrong, but w- was that around about the same time as when you, you basically went after the mining companies for, for pricing? Wasn't there a, didn't that happen around the same time you? So, well, the, yeah, there were two things. There was, there was, there was two. I don't want to mix them up. No, no, no. There were two events. Firstly, um, you know, Wayne Swan built into the forward estimates for the budget, uh, high, relatively high, um, iron ore prices. And when I became the treasurer, iron ore prices started to plummet, you know, to you know, 40 and falling, right? And I was going to have to write the prices down to around $30 per tonne, which is un- unbelievable. They're about 120 a tonne now, right? And 30 a tonne, and, and that would have meant the end of Fortescue. And uh, so I was going to Beijing and met with Lo Jiwei, the finance minister of China, who was a very pragmatic fellow. He's a very tough businessman. And um, and uh, he said to me, he said, what can I do? I said, look, you know, uh, if you keep pummeling the iron ore price, uh, Fortescue's going to fall over and you'll have to, uh, I'll, you know, and he said, well, that's your market. That's capitalism, right? And I said, well, here's, here's a different type of capitalism, you know. I will merge BHP and Rio and I'll control the price of iron ore for the yeah. world, right? And he looked at me and he said, you really do that? And I said, yeah, I'd really do that. And he said, okay, what do you need? And I said, the <laughs> price can never be less than $40 a tonne. Yeah. And it's never been mm. since then, right? Yeah. So he was very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and, and, you know, it gives you an insight into how they think uh, because, you know, a little bit later we were negotiating a free trade agreement with China, which was pretty remarkable. And Lo Wei rang me he said, look, Joe, I need to impose a tariff on coal, just 2%. I think it was about 2%. He said, I said, why are you doing that? Because we're abolishing all the tariffs Yeah, like in, in five months. He said, domestic politics. He said, I need to for domestic political purposes. Just let me have these five months. Just so he gets it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, and, and which, you know, was a, it wasn't the scale or anything. It was just a revelation about, they're nervous about domestic politics. Well, they're very pragmatic, yeah. the Chinese. Yeah. And, of course, the mining companies in Australia, you know, have been uh, just as pragmatic in meeting the market, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the, the big corporates like BHP and Rio, or now Fortescue, but also, you know, Gina's done an exceptional job, Jenna Reinhardt and Clive Palmer. I mean, people forget about Hancock and everything, as well. I agree, because it's not listed and stuff, yeah, but... I mean, but, they're phenomenal stories. Oh, totally. No, 100%. Um, what do you think, what, what are your sort of thoughts? And I'm interested in what the conversations were like in the cabinet um, on the, the Belt and Road Initiative 
Um, you know, it looks now to be a fairly obvious, um, uh, you know, geopolitical ploy in order to expand, a, you know, the footprint of of China logistically, but also I think to in debt like a portfolio of client yeah. states. So you're shaking your head. So maybe I, do you I, think that's wrong? I just wrong think or? they they struggle to implement, the, you know, external external uh, policy initiatives. That's that's a threat of China. You know, China. You, you got to take it very seriously, and there are many areas where China has been exceptional. Same with Russia, by the way. But you know, the the question is, can they? How do they go with the implementation? Yeah, and because in the West, you know, you see the sausage being made in all its ugliness. Mm. Um, in Russia and China, there is an air of mystery, and you say, for example, of course Russia is going to crush Ukraine, uh, but you know, the, the Russian army has been appalling. And 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 the leadership has been god awful in in the Russian army. It's always hard to know in the authoritarian states. Yeah, it exactly. And same with you know as you would with North Korea. You look at them, you know they're perfectly marching down the main square, but you know they've they've got I think the biggest submarine fleet in the world. Do you know this? You know this is a really good point on the military side of it. Um, so I was interviewing a, a guy. Um, the other day named uh, General John Furlow. He was the commander of the U.S. Army's 36th Infantry Division. And I was asking about the military aspects of, of, of a shooting war in Asia. Yeah. Um, and he, he was unequivocal. I said, he said they won't start a shooting war in Asia. And I said, why? He said, because they'll lose. And, okay, you know, we're not going to get into speculating and trying to game out the you know, the military aspects of it in this forum. But what he said was the main point of difference was that he said it in a pretty funny way. He's, he lives in West Texas. He said, I won't try and do his accent. He said, There's a, it's very different putting on a dress uniform and marching around a square than it is spending 20 years in the Middle East being shot at. Oh, of course. And he basically, he basically compared the two military forces in terms of whether they're battle-hardened or not. Well, you look at, you look at, you know, the Vietnam-China War, when was that, the late 70s from memory? I think, was it yeah. the 70s? Or, yeah, I think it was seemed to be called late 70s, but I might be wrong with my dates. And the Vietnamese were so battle-hardened, yeah. they effectively defeated China. Um, you know, that really does matter. The American military has, has been, you know, pretty finely tuned to deal with ready combat for yeah. a long period of time now. Right. And uh, China hasn't. Um, you'd think Russia was relatively well prepared, but it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's right. And to it's one thing to invade a country. It's another thing to successfully occupy a country. Right. And, uh, you know, Hong Kong's the size of a postage stamp and yet China's had all sorts of grief, you know, in, mm. in delivering... Hong Kong, even though they've obviously successfully done it now, but, you know, there's been a lot of internal grief and it's taken up a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. Look, <clears throat> I suspect, um, you, you know, there are many, the, China would prefer to be in a position where the people of Taiwan want to come over to China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's a long way away. Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> you know, technology is moving so rapidly, hypersonic missiles, you know, aircraft carrier defences. I mean, a very, very senior military figure, you know, when I talk about, you know, the, the South China Sea, and I said, you know, how big a threat is that 
to the United States and, and you know, it's passionate. He says, he shrugged his shoulders, he said, well, it's probably, you know, seven more immovable objects that we have to blast off the face yeah, of the earth. Right. There's many, many aspects to all of this. You know, I think technology is going to be a far bigger driver of confrontation. Yeah. Or it's going to be the more obvious tool than, than actually boots on the ground. Yeah. And um, I saw um, Tony Abbott was on the 7.30 report earlier this week and, and they were having this whole discussion about <clears throat> whether or not it's a fait accompli that Australia would um, enter a conflict between China and the US in, in Asia. And, and, and um, Mr. Abbott said yes. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the strength of the mutual defence treaty, et cetera? Of course it's yes. Mm -hmm. Of course it's yes. Yeah, yeah. There's no question, is there? I mean, it's, you know, people might, some people might not like it, but, you know, the US, I mean, to give you, you know, some perspective, um, you know, the US has military bases in 151 countries mm. around the world. Um, it spends more than what the next 10 countries combined on 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 military and all, all of all of whom are allies except for Russia <laughs> and China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, you know, the, just the scale of whose side are you going to be on, um, but also who shares your values? Mm. Because you know, it's as we've seen over the course of history, it's very hard to get people to fight on you know with you if they don't share your values. You know, there's been many instances of wars over many, many centuries. When you try to cobble together. Yeah, that's right. But do you sense, though, that there are some nation states in Asia for whom that value set is tipping towards China? And the obvious example is the Philippines, right? Not at all. You don't Not think so? Not at all. Not at all. So, I mean, because Bong Bong Marcus is fairly... Strongly yeah, out there in the I, press, I, banging on about how he's. But is that you think that's just he's playing a diplomatic? It's a bit like Belt and Road, right? It, you know, if someone holds out a bright shiny object, there are some people that will be attracted and walk towards it, right? <laughs> um, and and you know, fair enough. I mean, and if you can get a nice competition going between China and the United States, right. and you know, the West and the East, great, even better, mm. uh, because it, ultimately it's like an auction for your love, right? Everyone wants to have, you know, many people seeking their love and adoration. Yeah. So, you know, um, so I, I, I don't begrudge the Philippines for running, or… For running a competitive process. It could be that's right. <laughs> you know, but, but having said that, at the end of the day, who, you know, who are they going to trust? You know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You go and ask Sri Lanka or Pakistan to some degree or, you know, many other countries that signed up to Belt and Road… How's that going for you, right? I mean, it's well, Sri Lanka. There's a bit on in Sri Lanka well, as well right. at the moment, right? Well, that's right. I mean, but you know, how's that going for you? And and you know, the issue wasn't so much Belt and Road. I don't think you know. Coming back to the original question, it wasn't something that occupied a lot of our space. Although it did represent, it it, it was basically a tag on uh, mm. foreign policy and, and foreign aid, and you know. And with foreign aid with a, a purpose that was, you know, um, uh, far beyond altru altruistic. The, the, the interesting one was the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Right. Because China, and look, I have some sympathy for China. When I chaired the G20, obviously, you know, as treasurer, I went to meetings of the World Bank and I was, in the, the, you know, the, basically the leadership mm. group of the IMF. Mm. And both the, you know, and the IMF and the World Bank and to some degree the G20, they just 
it felt like Asia yeah. wasn't heard. Yeah. It really did. It was less a degree the G20, but in truth it was. It included the G20. You know, the IMF is a European-based organisation. The World Bank is an American-based organisation. And yet here you've got, you know, China, Japan, uh, you know, Asia generally, India arguably, the Indo-Pacific, and never to get a leadership role in those organisations. Yeah, right. Because of the legacy of Bretton Woods. So, you know, China says, well, we want to set up an Asian infrastructure and investment bank and, you know, have the region involved. I said yes, but there was a lot of resistance. There was a resistance from China, from the United States. There was big resistance from the United States. And there was resistance from Japan. Their automatic response was, well, we're not joining. Mm-hmm. I said, but how could we, as the biggest iron ore exporter in the world, with a focus on the Indo-Pacific, how could we not be part of an infrastructure bank for the region? And, and, and you know, we had this huge arm wrestle, which is in my book. Available available yeah. on Amazon now. Audio book coming out. Are you reading the audio book? Are you oh, perfor- yeah. I am, I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Oh, God, is it fun? Well, no, I'm doing it. It's in August and it's like it's 30 hours of talking. Oh, you haven't started yet, though? No, 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 no. No, 30 hours in a studio, but it's like. I don't know. I think it's good that you're doing it yourself. Like I love that Obama, for instance, did his own. It just sounds really, it sounds. Oh, how big is his book? It must have gone for months in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I got through it. But he got 60 million. He got, yeah, yeah. Is that, was your advance not 60 million? It was close. I thought that was a flat fee for. Well, mine was in Australian dollars, not US. I don't want to. I don't want to go into the exchange rate. I was going to say that cross has not been moving in your favour, huh? No, no, that's right. But uh-huh. and then you know that was a tipping point. Just yeah. that that was a you know when we said no, we're going to join, and then Thailand and and South Korea were waiting for us to lead, yeah. and thankfully we led. But it wasn't without resistance in the cabinet, yeah, sure. or in the National Security Committee, or resistance from the US and Japan. Yeah, and um, you know I just. I took a view and in the end Tony Abbott and, and with the help of Andrew Robb and a few others, we mm. we got it across the line. And, you know, that's – you you need to embrace China but not to be subservient to it. You need to deal with China. This idea of containing China is complete bullshit. It's just naive. Like, this is not 1937, you know, 30s with Japan. I mean, you know, that's not going to work yeah. and nor should it. Yep. No, I agree. Um, so on the looking a little bit more closely at the US-Australia diplomacy piece, so um, your role as, as ambassador, I mean, how would you describe the, the relationship between the US and Australia um, just in the abstract first? And then, you know, I, I know that there was a little bit of turbulence as you sort of landed in DC with a couple of issues that came up um, around the refugee deal and also around um, the um, the thing that's only recently come out about how down is cable, um, which, which I'd love to talk to you about as well. But but just more broadly, what, um, you know, how, what was your perception of the US and Australian relationship and, and was it, um, did it meet your expectations when you arrived? Oh, it was deeper than I knew and more intimate than I knew. As, as a member of the Cabinet, National Security Committee, as a member of government and, and opposition in Parliament for 20 years, I never knew how granular and how deep and broad uh, and intimate the, the relationship is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's every, you know, at levels that you would never expect. 
it's way more culturally intertwined than I realized when I moved here as well. And it's especially when you go to places like Texas. Like I had not spent a lot, a lot of time outside of LA and New York before I moved here, but oh, I've yeah. traveled all around. And it's um, you, in some of the, um, you know, outside of New York State and California, not to say that there aren't similarities to Australia in those places too, but there really are like some bizarrely parallel sort of cultural aspects of, of living here. I stole a line from one of the previous Australian ambassadors and when people ask me, you know, what, 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 what is Australia like? Um, I'd say we're just like Californians, except we like America. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, yeah, yeah, we love that. Yeah, yeah, we get that. Yeah, we get good. it. So, you know, uh, it, it, that's why it, in so many ways, you know, Americans absolutely love Australians. Yeah. And, you know, Australians grudgingly, they, some grudgingly, but a lot of them go, God, you know, it's a perplexing place, but Americans are great. Well, everybody back home, you know, like, you know, everyone's happy to sit, a, you know, in Ryan's bar and bang on about you seeing what those Yanks have done now. But when you come here and you, you get treated so nicely, it's flattering and they actually like us. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like it's very different. So you walk into a pub in London and say, G'day, mate, you get a very different reaction than if you walk into a bar and say, G'day, mate, here in the States, you know, like. Well, that's because, you know, I mean. Big brother, little brother, et cetera. But. Well, uh, no, I think England, you know, the, the English are more resentful that, you know, they, they gave away Australia and then they actually gave away something. It's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. the aspirations, the everyday Englishman, you know, aspires. To, is, still, is still spewing about that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, when, we, when I was chairing the G20, we had the Chinese in town. Like everyone was in town in, in Cairns. And uh, for the first meeting, and it was really a great, I put on a barbecue on the beach for finance ministers and central bank governors. And um, I said after a couple of drinks in my speech that uh, we have Lo Ji Wei here, the finance minister of China. You know, the Chinese actually landed uh, to, on, on Australian soil um, probably about six, 700 years ago. And if they had a state, they could have had all the iron ore for free. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, too you're slow. Lost. You're lost, too slow. So you say it to the pubs as well. And, yeah. and everyone's had a go. The Dutch, yeah. as an Aboriginal elder said to me, he said, Joe, you know, you've got to stop those boats coming. I said, really? I said, why would you say that? And he said, look what happened last time we let him in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was that Noel Pearson who said that? No, no, it was Aboriginal elder at Kakadu. And it was, God, he made me laugh. Because Noel Pearson is one of my favourite people and I just think that sounds exactly like the sort of dry wit that he's right. got. Look what happened last time we let the boats in, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What was the hardest part of being Australia's ambassador to the US and what was the most rewarding part? And that could, maybe that's the same thing. Oh. Good questions. What was the hardest part? Um, oh, I think the hardest part was dealing with DFAT from time to time. <laughs> it was just, um, you know, I didn't do any cables. Uh, so I read, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you made that decision not to sign look, any diplomatic cables? Well, because it made I, sense to me. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. I mean, because I was a very senior political figure in Australia and you never know where the cable, I know normally you would trust the cables and, and, and you know, the, the, 
But every the, staffer can see it. Everyone, everyone, everyone sees it. And so if you express an opinion about something, you know, particularly in a, in a toxic environment with, with, with Donald Trump as a candidate or president, um, it was, it, you know, I could see it, un, un, you know, falling apart. And it did for the British ambassador. The British ambassador wrote a cable that was, even as he said, you know, it was pretty mild compared to what he could have written. And uh, it was leaked back in, in Whitehall. Only four people saw the cable and it brought him down. He got turfed out. He got turfed because Trump said, I'm never dealing with this this guy and um, and uh, and they had to sack him. Mm. Uh, you know, the beauty of the British system compared to Australia is, you know, he got not only a knighthood, but he got elevated to the House of Lords. <laughs> I got a. I didn't even get a. I didn't even get a thank you note for my role as ambassador. Or, you know, twenty years in politics. So. No hereditary title no, for the no, hockey clan. No, none of that. You know, so it might have been better to have been sacked. But, um, but I also said, you know, to any of the very senior decision makers in Australia, my, I'm on a phone. I can go on a secure phone. You know. Come over, I'll see you when I come back. And the, I don't think any of them would suggest that there wasn't an access to information. I just didn't want it under my name that could potentially create a stir between the US and Australia because it was a febrile atmosphere. Mm. And at the end of the day, Jack, I'm going to tell you, I say with all genuine sincerity that. You know, the only two countries the Trump administration really had a sort of close relationship with at the end were Israel and Australia, and arguably Australia even more than Israel. Yeah. No, I mean, it's and 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 the fact that Australia has been able to transition really well with Joe Biden, right, and more so than Israel. Mm. Is is a great story as well. That shows you, if you're comparing the depth of the relationship to other countries, ours is deeper and broader than any other any other country yeah. with the United States. And t- tell us a little bit about. Um, sorry, I know I keep pulling you back to this, but it's just a great story. So, what um, what what impact did uh, the cable that um, Alexander Downer, when he was High Commissioner in London, sent home have here in the US. Um, well, over time, it was thermonuclear, right? But I mean, I, I'm just not sure that it's that well reported or understood the the well, fact well, pattern of what happened. Well, that's so. right. Again, it's in the book, but the uh, <laughs> okay, right, but, but but you know that I mean, Trump, you know that the what really happened was, uh, you know, a a dirtbag called Papadopoulos was working on the Trump campaign. And, you know, this is when no one wanted to work on the Trump campaign. He attracted all sorts of spivs, right? Yeah, and it was moths to a flame, right? It's when they started measuring them in Scaramucci's. Although that was when he was in, I guess. There's a whole lot of, yeah, that's right. But there was, you know, Roger Stone and, yeah, they were all spivs, right? And... um, I love that word. I don't hear it enough in America. No, no, no. Well, it's an apt apt description. And um, Papadopoulos is one of them, young guy, big talker. He goes to London and, you know, tells everyone he's working on Trump's foreign policy, as candidate Trump's foreign policy. And he meets with Downer. Downer's talked into meeting him. He meets Downer for one drink and Downer as high commissioner. And Downer says, uh, and this guy says to Downer, you know, we've got a bucket load of dirt on Hillary that's going to hit, you know, at some point. Downer, you know, as he 
would do as a proper, you know, a diplomat. He wrote a cable back to Canberra and said, look, you know, I met this guy, Papadopoulos, who says they've got a whole lot of dirt on Hillary. You know, it was one paragraph in a cable, three-page cable. Yeah. And um, he didn't think any more about it because, you know, then WikiLeaks happened and all this dirt was dumped on Hillary, right? And, you know, the Russians were, well, whatever the case, he goes, holy cow, right? What happened mm. there? So Downer goes around to the American embassy and sees the acting ambassador and says, look, you know, this fellow Papadopoulos, he told me three months ago, for whatever it was, that, um, you know, there's a whole lot of dirt about to be and dumped, man. right? And then the embassy reports back to the FBI. This is the interesting part that, that uh, you know, Comey, director of the FBI, almost immediately opens an investigation into the Trump campaign based on that information. Yeah. yeah. The best we could see, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being very general about all this. But, you know, it was, I think there is a strong argument and Trump had a, you know, could be justified in saying, hang on, on what? On 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 what the Australian, uh, you know, High Commissioner had said? And, you know, is that enough to open a full investigation into my campaign? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, so that really grated on Trump the whole way. He said it all started with, you know, that Downing fellow. I said Downing. Downing. You know, Downing. He called him Downing. Downing. He kept calling him Downing. And, you know, I, I think Alexander behaved absolutely right. He, what he did was absolutely right. I couldn't think of two more different personalities than but, you know, and like, Trump. And then tr- Trump would raise with me, oh, well, you know, didn't Downing give a lot of money to the Clinton <laughs> Foundation? I said, no, what we did was as a government, you know, we gave money to the Clinton Foundation for work on HIV in Papua New Guinea. And, mm. uh, it's, it's, but it was just the, you know, every time it came up, the whole Mueller and the whole stuff. Then you you felt that in, in Donald Trump's perception and, you know, rightly to some extent, he would see that and he would, that synapse would fire that said that the Australian diplomats caused me this headache. Oh, correct. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, you know, he is a traitor. Trump was a, is, is and was a traitor. And so what you've got to do is give him something in return. And we gave him mm. in return at no cost to Australia, but. Um, what did you give him? At the, oh, you know, like I, we eventually for example, released to Bill Barr, the Attorney General, the full Mm -hmm. cable. Mm -hmm. Bill Barr asked me on numerous occasions, can we release an Australian cable? I said, you can't release an Australian cable. Mm -hmm. You know, we just don't, our internal communications aren't for you Mm -hmm. to publicise, right? And I didn't want us ending up in hearings up on the hill and, you know, I was trying to manage a relationship. But at the end of the day, the President directed that all cable, all information be released. Mm -hmm. So I sort of, you know, got ahead of that wave and, and said, we'll, we'll release to Bill Barr all else. Got it. And it was, you know, a very agreeable sort of process. Yeah. So we were talking about um, about how there was some turbulence at the beginning of the relationship with um, with the Trump administration, but how did it, um, clearly you managed that well and, and, you know, what are some of your better stories about your interactions with, with uh, President Trump and... Um, I guess afterwards, we'll probably the natural place to go is to discuss whether he's going to have a crack in 2024. But before that, tell us a bit about what it was like working with him. You know, he's a very practical fellow. I mean, he's very engaging. Um, all the presidents are different. 
the starting point is, you know, no one becomes president in the United States if they're a fool, right? Um, and I think, um, you know, accurate, accurate um, historical analysis will properly reflect that. Um, all of them brought something to the table that was positive. And even if you took an Oliver Stoden approach and everything's bad, there were some, you know, they were all individuals that, um, you know, brought some strengths. Um, Trump had an inquisitive, has an inquisitive mind privately. Is that right? Because it do- yeah. that doesn't come across at all. No, it's really interesting. Yeah, he, could you give us an example? Uh, you know, he when being with him privately, he'd ask, you know, I mean, a, a dozen questions about the bushfires. He'd, really, you know, he'd just say, "So, what's really happening with those bushfires? How does why?" Why does this happen? Why does that happen? How does you know? He's asked a lot of questions. Or um, it's funny that 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 streak doesn't come across. I mean, maybe it's by design. I don't know, but it's not. You don't get the sense that he's that he's that detail oriented. No, no, no. He's got a curious mind, and he and he, he cares about Australia. Right? Well, but but it could be other things as well. I mean, there are a multitude of things, and he was, he, you know, he's interested in the opinion of someone who doesn't represent a threat to him, and so. He's always got, I think he, you know, felt the need to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. yeah. Which was, you know, uh, a lack of confidence coming from the fact that he never held elected office prior to being president. I mean, right. you know, even the, most of the presidents of the United States have even been chair of the school board or something, right? But uh, um, not What's Donald Trump. Much? No, Donald Trump had never held elected office. And you know he had he was imbued with this you know massive confidence and why not I mean you know he built his, you know these amazing buildings in you know New York and around around the world and the United States he became a billionaire you know turns his hand to the media and becomes you know a, a rock star in the media um, you know gets married finds his beautiful women has beautiful children. Uh, and, you know, decides he's going to run for president of the United States and wins. Does it surprise you the some of the inherent contradictions in the way that you've described his life and the GOP's sort of central moral tenets in terms of their policy platform? Does, oh, does it for, sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know. That, it's like, it seems to show a fair bit of flexibility. You know, he never moralised against divorce. or. I'm, I'm not saying he's a, he's a hypocrite, but I'm saying that Ted Cruz is a hypocrite. And that you know that the, the sort of the sort of um, Republican high-profile Republican um, elected officials who like have have really campaigned and doubled down on that moral sort of yeah. bedrock yeah. argument. It was just a. It, it just seems that I was surprised at how um, quickly you know the large parts of the party sort of machine were willing to sort of roll over, roll over, right? Because you know in America, success means money and if you got money you get success yeah and donald trump brought both to the table right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he, you know he was a winner and the, the worst thing in in donald trump's whole narrative the very worst thing that can be said and he uses this term you know he doesn't he doesn't use the normal vernacular australians would use about some individual 
uh, being a bad individual, you know, like usual swear words. <laughs> well, I'd uh, imagine in the cabinet of the Australian Parliament, you probably there's some probably some pretty no, colourful no, no, language no, no, from time think, to time. I don't think anyone really swore. Really? In cabinet? No, John Howard. I don't think I'd ever heard John Howard. Oh, he swore at me once, I think, but that was about it. But but no, it but you know, um, and Trump did swear, but he was you know not not prolific in it. But the worst thing he could say about someone is you're a loser. Mm. You are a loser, right? And um, uh, and so for him to be branded a loser from the election, I mean, he just couldn't accept it. As the whole world knows now, he could not accept being a loser. So if he were to run again, the question is, would he be a two-time loser? And that's why I am still on the side of, of the equation saying I don't think he will run. For fear of losing, the problem is that Joe Biden's numbers are so appalling. That's right, and the succession in the Democrats is, is non-existent. Well, I'm sure it's existed there somewhere. I mean, well, you know. Well, you know, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Not non-existent has been shown to be yeah, uh, pretty non-compelling. Yeah, that's right. Like I, I don't think that Kamala Harris has has her view among the electorate has improved during her time as VP. I no, think it's probably gone down. not. But I mean, it's a hard. It's very hard. I mean, to be fair to her, mm. I, you know, I don't want anyone to overinterpret this, but, you know, it's very hard, I mean, to shine as a vice president. Sure. And if you do, when you've got a president that's very vulnerable, usually you have the White House and everyone else working against you, right? So mm. you can't you can't outshine the guy who's, you know, on a rock bottom on 34. So, you know, you can't. Well, yes and no. I mean, you would also think that given that, you know, I can't see Biden running for another term. No, can you? No, no, no. So, like, you'd think in that setup that, that, he, that the offices of the president and the vice president would probably work a bit better together. No. No. no? no. <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, why would you want to have a high profile, very successful vice president right. if you're, you know, aging? Um, and looking a little frail and on 34% favorability. Well, I mean, if you, again, how do we know purely? I mean, I, how can I know? I'm purely speculating. I was just imagining that Biden would probably rather have a, have a sort of a nominee with a bow tied up rather than watch the party go through a... Well, you see, when the party has gone through a robust contest... Yeah, it's come up with obscure people that end up being two-term presidents, like Clinton and Obama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they were. They, you know, they, uh, who was Clinton? He was from Arkansas, governor. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the midterms before Bush-Clinton, they were both virtually unknown at the, at the midterms totally. leading into it. And they came out of nowhere. So that's why I won't write off the Democrats. Right, because someone could show up. Well, and it's been proven twice yep. in recent times. Um. You know, it's not like they had a long run-up to use the Australian cricketing phrase like uh, John F. Kennedy or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. What um, what's your favourite uh, Donald Trump anecdote from your time interacting with him? Oh my god. Mm. So you know, I've got to confess, Jack. I'm going through this internal filtering process, censorship. I'm just going, no, no. And, you know, I go to a dinner party and, you know, people quietly fill me up with Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> That's a tip for people. And uh, and then they start rolling off, right? But um, what is a favourite? 
Well, nice New Zealand Sav Blanc. Nice yeah, Sav yeah, Blanc yeah. gets the Trump stories flowing. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, or Sancerre. I don't discriminate. I don't discriminate. I'm, I'm not anti-French. Um, look, you know, the... the, the uh, oh, look, here's a good point. It's, it's, you know, a bit of mischief, right? So Scott Morrison, myself, and various others are in the Oval Office with Donald Trump, and that night is the state dinner, right? And Rupert Murdoch wasn't feeling too well. And uh, uh, so um, the president yells out to his PA, get me Rupert on the phone, get me Rupert on the phone. And uh, she comes in a moment later and um, and, uh, she says, oh, I've got Mr Murdoch on the phone, Mr President. Quick, quick, Scott, bring your chair over the resolute desk. Bring your chair over. Okay, Scott brings his chair over. And he puts him on loudspeaker. He says, Rupert, Rupert. He says, oh, hello, Mr. President. Uh, Rupert, we're really sorry you're not coming tonight. Oh, yes, I'm not feeling too well, but, uh, you know, thank you at any rate. I've got Scott Morrison here. Oh, hello, hello, Scott. Yes, great to, great to hear from you. Rupert, Rupert, what's your favourite country, United States or Australia? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's good. It, it was a great moment. It was hilarious. Mm. River was ah look, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The line. This is not a bad line. I can't hear. You. It was. It was just you know he had this mischievous. He also had, you know, in his office he had a red button once when I went in there. He said, you know, Joe. He said, Joe, he said everyone tells me not to touch that button. And uh, you know, I said, well, what's, what's it for, Mr. President? He's, oh, I don't know, but you know, they just say don't touch it. You know, it's like, Lord knows what can happen. Um, halfway through the meeting, he just bang, hits the button. And I go, holy cow, I'm expecting every door to burst open with armed secret service. And his PA comes in with a Diet Coke, you know. Yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, well, look, that's really interesting, mate, because I, I think that that, look, people's perceptions of, of him are obviously pretty divided. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, like, that's not going out on a, brand, on a limb, but it does um, – you know that surprises me to some extent. Um, you know that the that you felt that he was intellectually curious and stuff about like that, and it's promising that it was around topics that are important to Australia. You know, oh, sure, he's sure. trying to clearly he's a politician. Well, but he wasn't. He was a businessman that became a politician, and 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 uh, you're right. All his shortcomings were in his ability to do the right thing as a politician but I do you know he probably got better at that sort of stuff and figuring out do you think he just doesn't care no I didn't I don't think he cared well I think he cared but I just don't think he had the skill set to probably manage I mean you know there's people always say oh gosh if we only had a businessman running the country well we've got a conga line of failed businessmen or successful businessmen that have failed in politics yeah and uh you know Michael Bloomberg's a great example of that yeah um Actually, you know, you remind me something I wanted to ask you about. Did you know Shinzo Abe? I'd met him once, yeah. Yeah, charming guy. I mean, just urbane. And- I met him once at Bloomberg's offices in New York, which is why I just yeah. was reminded of it when you said it. He came to do a um, a speech. He might have been, it was five years or something ago, he might have been in town for, for some sort of multilateral body, I don't know, maybe the UN, yeah. but... Um, I couldn't believe when I saw that news. I mean, That's it's just, crazy, isn't it? It? It, just, it just seems very random and... I know. I mean, you probably look for a deeper conspiracy, but the problem is that there are so many freaks in this world. That, no, it's just it does you know, look like he's a nut, just a nut. It's like a John Lennon sort of it situation. Is, yeah, right? yeah. It's just you know, 
which is terrible. How, how, like, uh, yeah, I, I just, I feel so sad because he was such a towering figure in modern Japanese politics and, and generally in the industry. He seemed to be really good at the job. Like, he seemed to do a good job of. Yeah, he did. He Because you remember, it was, it was you know, a revolving door. Well, he had one short stint first before his long stint, didn't he? Well, that's yeah. quite right. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, one of the people that really held it all together for him was his deputy prime minister and a mate of mine, Taro Aso, yeah. who was also finance minister and, you know, and a former prime minister. And he was very loyal and held everything together while Shinzo Abe did what he can. And, look, you know, I, I'm surprised how all these sort of cockroach-like critics come out now saying, oh, well, you know, Abe always failed and so on. Actually, it didn't. You forget how bad Japan was before Abe. 20 years of deflation. Like, oh, oh, that's true. You know, and also just a, just a receding power, a receding. No, it's the greatest example of 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 military misadventure coupled with economic mismanagement, right? Because yeah. I think, um, you know, I used to go to Japan all the time for, for three or four times a year for work and um, I was always struck by like, you know, this would, this would be five years after Arbonomics started and you'd still go to walk into 7-Eleven and, and there'd be like little old Japanese women who, with their pocketbooks, they write down the prices of everything and they see which prices are going up or down day to day to day. And then they do their grocery shopping like, like, and it's just that 20 years of deflation is, can, can so dramatically impact the psyche of an entire economy, I think. Oh, oh for sure. I mean, well, there are many things. And I'd argue, I'm with you. I mean, you could argue that at the time, I remember a lot of people were argue that, arguing that it was being done under the intellectual camouflage of quantitative easing, but in reality it was a fiscal measure because they couldn't roll the JGB market over. And there's probably a bit of truth in that as well. But, I mean, all in all, it's, that just means it's probably even smarter policy position for him to take, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting, and you know, Japan sort of breaks the usual golden rule of politics that if you're going to have bipartisan support for social policy reform, mm. it has to be the right of politics that implements the reform. Yeah. And if you're going to have real economic reform, it has to be the left that initiates reform. That's how you get bipartisan agreement, right? Yeah. That's why the US is such a cocktail of despair when it comes to <laughs> But Japan, you know, because of the dominance of one political party, I mean, it was it took an enormously courageous internal reformer. Yeah. He's gutsy. I just, he's just a good, you know, he was, even as an Aussie. But also he had a heritage of it, so he knew how far he could go without breaking, yeah. His granddad was PM, wasn't he? Senior minister or something, I think. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, last question. Who's going to win the rugby on Saturday night? I think Australia, but, geez, we've got to carry a lot of injuries. What was the ref up to on Saturday night? Oh, don't start me on this. I, the only time I'm tweeting, like, oh God, I've got a couple of hundred thousand followers on Twitter. And, and really, you know. A, it's a couple of hundred thousand more than oh, me. Oh, mate, and I'll tell you that, you know, the feedback's not always you know, encouraging. But um, <laughs> but I really can't help myself when it comes to rugby referees at the moment. I just like, I think there's just such a, a you know, d- massive operational divide between Northern and Southern Hemisphere refereeing. Anyway, I mean, I'm really proud of the Wallabies. They've done well. But Yeah. I, um, I was in a cafe in New York a couple of weeks ago and I, got up to pay the bill and Quade Cooper was standing in front of me paying the bill. So oh, really? It must have been on a quick holiday before uh, before the – maybe four weeks ago. I was surprised wow. to see him in New York because he's playing, isn't he? 
He's been injured. So he's going to be, maybe he'll be back for this test or certainly back for the others. I don't know. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Mate, that's really interesting. Like, I feel like you get a real insight from talking to somebody who's just been in the room for a long period of time, right? (laughs) No, seriously. Like, I mean, it's a a pretty small little um, club, you know, in terms of getting to do that for the period that you did. So thanks for sharing your experiences with us. No problems, mate. Great to be with you. Cheers, Joe. Thanks for coming to see. And here's Joe and my discussion on Aussie politics from the start of the interview. Um, but before we get into that, um, I'd be remiss uh, as an Aussie not to ask you what you think of the results at the last election, whether you were surprised at all. Um, what do you think the main takeaways are from, from what we saw unfold? Well, I don't think the election result was a, a surprise. I thought the Labor Party would get a higher primary vote. Um, and, you know, the government did look tired. I mean, you never like losing government, but it looked like it was a tired government. And like many other governments that have had to manage COVID and the dual challenge of a health crisis and a, an economic crisis, I, I think they were, um, you know, both physically and mentally exhausted. Yeah. And... So the Australian people, you know, usually get it right. And, uh, but it's going to be a hell of a challenge for Anthony Albanese dealing with, uh, um, you know, the, the four spear tips that represent a threat to his government, which is rising inflation, rising interest rates, probably rising unemployment and falling uh, economic growth. I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, haven't it- seen an environment like that before. It's an incredibly ugly cocktail of macro externalities. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's the, the whole Western world to some extent is being faced with it, right? Um, and it's this sort of stagflationary um, scenario where there's not that many obvious policy levers to pull from what, from what I can tell. Well, I mean, that's right. Yeah, you, you've got inflation that's being heavily, usually it's driven by, uh, you know, fuel and higher wages, but now you've got wages catching up to the massive growth in, in inflation. Of course, monetary policy is a really blunt instrument that can do absolutely nothing to address supply chain complexities. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, I think I think this has got a, a, a way to go. Yeah. I mean, you've said before um, about your time as an elected representative that, you know, the Abbott government was good at policy but bad at politics. I think you said that in your farewell speech in the House of Representatives, I remember. Mm. Um I mean, it, it seems to me like towards the end, the Morrison government got bad at both. I mean, I, I'm not asking you to throw them under the bus, but did you feel that the messaging, was it that they struggled with messaging in, in you know, a similar way to your, when you were elected, you did at times? Well, there's a point where people don't want to listen to your message. So, right. you know, it doesn't matter what you say or do. Um, and, you know, the thing is government these days is far more reactive than it was when I was first elected in 1996 and when, you know, governments would be expected to set agendas, to send, to, to you know, set an economic agenda, a social policy agenda. Today, I think um, because of the advent of social media and instantaneous communication, there's an expectation the government will fix every problem uh, and uh, in doing so, uh, you know, it's an unrealistic expectation that they're going to drive huge Economics and social reform. Yeah. 
But that's been a big theme of your position for many, for decades, right? The whole sort of thing around that there is a crystalline trade-off between social programs and the fiscal position. Sure, sure there and, is, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's unethical and unhelpful for politicians to present it otherwise, right? I mean, you see that in the States to some extent. Well, right? you know, the greatest, I think, uh, you know, Anthony Albadizi did a pretty good job defining Scott Morrison in a way Scott Morrison wouldn't have liked. Yeah. And, you know, the art of modern politics is to define yourself before your opponents define you. Right. Uh, secondly, um, y- y- you know, the, 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 it's just it's just a speed challenge and, and competency challenge and, you know, the pressure of being a hung parliament, mm-hmm. all these different pressures coming together. And, look, you know, I, I think... I think there's just a lot happening in this world at the moment and, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, you're going to see, I'd, I'd be dumbfounded if you didn't see more um, political volatility right. in Western democracies over the next few years. Yeah. And last one on the Aussie politics front, but how do you think Peter Dutton's doing in the first couple of months in the chair as, as the leader? I mean, there's certainly a perception um, out there that, it's the worst job in the world to come in taking over the leadership of the opposition after you've just lost government. Um, you know, is this is this going to is he going to get Brendan Nelson or is is, is this an no, opportunity no. to actually to you know is there yeah. a platform to rebuild given that things are so up in the air? Well, I think there are a few things that are going for Peter. Firstly, he is well defined in the minds of Australians. You know, he is very tough on issues like national security. He has strong values. Um, he is an economic conservative. Uh, he's a responsible, mature adult, and um, so I think that is is a great advantage. Also, uh, you know, within the Liberal Party, there is no obvious person that's trying to pull him down the way Malcolm Turnbull right. never stopped pulling down everyone except himself. Mm. Um, and so I think. Uh, you know, there's there's a clear clear path, and the third thing is Labor, you know, has a majority, which will make it a bit easier and uh, to to go after Labor, and, and he's just got to focus on Labor rather than worrying about these, you know, fake independents everywhere. I mean, yeah, right. they're, they're they're Labor light mm-hmm. um, or green light, and and frankly, you know, uh, they'll, they'll they'll be swept away in you know, in a potential change of government or. Or a, a re empowered Albanese government next election. Sure. Okay, next up today is Bob Donor, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the US Treasury. Uh, Bob's an authority when it comes to bilateral economic relations between China and the United States. And he's got a bunch of unique insights into what actually happens behind the scenes in negotiations between the two superpowers. I'm going to let Bob tell you himself how he gleaned these insights over a very long, impressive career. So without further ado, here's Bob. Um, so Bob, could you um, give us a, a bridge summary of your career um, in, uh, in the US government? Oh dear. So I started out years ago as a junior staff economist at the US Council of Economic Advisors. Um, worked briefly at the State Department and then at the OECD in Paris, uh, not as a U.S. government official. 
then went back to the Council of Economic Advisors and uh, worked for 23 years at the U.S. Treasury. Uh, the last part of that was working on Asia. I directed the Asia staff work. Most of that was on China. Mm. And could we dig a little bit more deeply into the the China part of the equation because that's going to be the focus for for our discussion today? Um, what sort of bilateral discourse did you preside over, or were you involved in um, during your time at the Treasury? So, I helped set up the strategic economic dialogue under Hank Paulson when he was Secretary of Treasury. That was his baby. He loved it. Um, was uh, during the second Bush administration. That became the strategic and economic dialogue in the Obama administration. So I was really there at a time when um, I don't think we ever viewed the Chinese as allies or as partners, but there was a time of increasing optimism, possibility that we would be able to work with China both on domestic issues, but also on international issues. Uh, by the end of the Obama administration, uh, early years of the Xi uh, administration in China, there was increasing pessimism about the bilateral relationship and increasing tension in the, the overall relation between the two countries. Mm. And that seems to have, um, you know, continued on something of a downward trajectory post your departure from the Treasury. Um, do you have any observations about how that dialogue unfolded, say, during the Trump administration? Well, yeah, I think President Trump was an accelerant of a trend that was already existing. Um, I don't think we would have had the, the tariffs or the extent of the, um, the animosity between the two countries. And, and remember, Trump very nearly, uh, in his words, closed the trade deal of the century with China until um, things all went wrong. So he he definitely accelerated a, a downward trend that I think was already there. Yeah. And digging like qualitatively into some of the more aggressive um, the, the, or to the more aggressive stance, like do you think that that's effective in terms of achieving America's goals? I know that's a very expansive um, question, but, you know, is, is a more adversarial approach warranted, I guess, is what I'm asking given some of the other machinations that have unfolded, uh, both domestically and internationally, as it pertains to China's foreign policy? Uh, I guess let me answer that carefully. Um, the, the downward trend in relationship came from both sides. It was Chinese actions as well as US actions. It was a more aggressive, more confrontational Xi administration. So the, the increasingly tense relationship and the the decoupling or differentiation of the two economies, I think was warranted on strategic and also risk management grounds. Um, you know, the Chinese have not hesitated to use access to their market, or in some cases, uh, restrictions on supplies to punish countries they, they disagree with. Um, a friend of mine, Bill Reinsch at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, talks about uh, strategies for races. If you're in a, a race with someone, you, two things you can do is run faster or try to trip the other guy. Uh, we've, I think, tried to do both, uh, probably more emphasis recently on trying to slow China's technical advance down. 
And I think the the sanctions that we have put, the limitations on supplies of high technology uh, products and, and services, the Chinese have had a temporary, at least a temporary effect. Yeah. And ironically, like the example that you identify there around technology, it kind of cuts both ways in this example, because it's also one of the reasons why Taiwan is such an issue, right? It's because it makes up the vast majority of the global footprint for the production of semiconductors, um, which is just a long-winded way of saying that the computer chips that go into everything that we need now are all produced in Taiwan. And so that obviously makes it much more strategically important. Um, I guess the main focus of this episode of the podcast is trying to understand how the economic overlay is impacting the outlook for some sort of a flashpoint in Asia to emerge. And Taiwan's probably where that's most probable. So do you have any thoughts about how economic dialogue engagement um, you know, can assist the diplomatic efforts, um, you know, in a place like Asia? So we have tried to, um, let me back up a second. The, um, the real sources of the most advanced semiconductor chips, definitely Taiwan, uh, semiconductor chips are of varying uh, degrees of sophistication are made in a lot of places. If you really, if you look at the countries that are most important for today's current high technology products, they're really the United States, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China. And uh, we have loosely uh, four of the five most important countries. Oh, I should also add the Netherlands for uh, semiconductor lithography equipment. So we have, say, roughly five of the six most important sources of high technology production. And we've tried to loosely gather them into a uh, uh, alliance is too strong a word, but a grouping that is quite conscious of the technology risks that China poses uh, both uh, security risk, but also risks to loss of technology uh, through theft or other types of appropriation. So the call it economic dialogue um, is has become a part of the security dialogue. I think particularly, it's worth emphasizing a point that I often make is that that we used to think of of military technology is just what defense companies did, what the Grumman's and the, the, um, the other... Planes of bombs and stuff. Yeah, munitions companies did. Now it's a much wider range of, of economic industries, of, of companies in uh, the general economy that produce products that have military or national security implications. So we have tried to organize the most important supplier countries outside of China, and also, you know, make sure that they're they're aware of the risks posed by Chinese appropriation of technology, Chinese purchases of companies or other investments. Um, so, in that sense, the economic dialogue, not so much with China, uh, but as with other countries, has had an important security aspect. Yeah, we have tried. Yeah, we tried. We tried with China to um, 
to work out some protocols or agreement on uh, cyber espionage and, and theft of technology. I don't think those ever worked very well. Um, so um, the, the extent our economic dialogue with China has led to national security benefits, probably not so much. Yeah. And in those bilateral conversations between Western allies that you were describing there, um, one thing that sort of came up during the rollout of the the Russian sanctions program in retaliation to the invasion of Ukraine was sort of the asymmetry of how the costs of the sanction program were being borne by different members of the, the loose alliance, I guess. Um, so that seemed really relevant with a place like China, right? So you take the country where I hail from, for instance, Australia, um, you know, which which the only reason Australia is as, as in such a fortuitous financial position as it is, is because of exporting iron ore to China. I mean, it's a huge, huge part of the current account, right? And um, I actually interviewed Joe Hockey yesterday, who was the Australian ambassador and former Australian treasurer. And he was telling me about how President Obama had asked Australia to, to cease selling iron ore to Australia, and we couldn't do that. Um and basically, there hasn't been much cooperation on that front since then. Um, so it doesn't feel like a part of the dialogue, which is um, moving really uh, effectively on on the Western side. Do you do you see this as a challenge? Um, getting getting countries to buy into sanctions and tariffs to influence authoritarian regimes when they have to wear the cost of those um, actions asymmetrically. Oh, sure. There's no question that's a, that's a difficulty and. The United States often asks things of countries that are much more difficult for them to follow through on than it is for the United States to follow through on. Um, the, the Ukraine-Russian war sanctions are interesting in that the United States has taken some steps to uh, try to ameliorate the particularly the national gas uh, problems of, of European countries. Uh, we've increased exports uh, from the United States of natural gas, even though it's raised prices domestically. Uh, that kind of action increases domestic pressure at home, but it's really important for the United States to be able to follow through on measures to aid the countries that are most impacted. Um, in the case of of confrontation with China, I think, as you point out, Australia is really exposed. So is Korea, uh, with a huge dependence on China for export markets, roughly the same as Australia. Yeah, it's a very difficult position. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these funny things where it's almost like the worse that China's provocations get, the less of an issue this becomes. Like I in Australia, the the whole debate around whether or not to double down on the alliance with the United States in Asia, like that was a live question eighteen months ago, and now it's not. I mean, nobody thinks that we shouldn't just be completely standing side to side with with this with the United States as as we have done and will continue to do. But it's just interesting to to game out how different states are exposed to the negative repercussions of that sort of activity. Yeah, no question. Um, so if we look at the, um, you know, we described how the dialogue had become more troubled um, because of the actions of both sides. What do you think about the outlook for sort of a remediation in some of the really fiery language that's out there, both at the 
you know, the very most senior level, but all the way sort of down, it feels like the, the, the character of the discussions become quite adversarial. And I wonder whether or not from a diplomatic standpoint, you know, are there examples in your career where behind the scenes, below the surface, um, you know, diplomats are able to try and reopen some of that dialogue to try and make it a little less combative? So there's certainly instances in which discussions take place quietly below the radar and actually uh, produce results on specific, relatively detailed and, and sometimes from an outside view, minor uh, set of issues. The real question is whether progress at that level can lead to a more generalized and public opening of relations uh, and cooperation between the two countries. And on that, I'm kind of pessimistic. I think because they're below the radar, they are isolated and have limited generalized effect. And also, I think the prospects for increasing, uh, sorry, for improving US-China relations are actually pretty bleak. Uh, U.S. politics argues against it. The Republican candidates uh, for president in 2024 will all run on strong anti-China uh, programs. The, in principle, the Chinese administration has has more flexibility, but they face a very nationalistic, internet-connected public opinion that limits the flexibility that they have on their part. What do you anticipate, um, if any, change to the current approach if we end up with a Republican administration in 2024. So, you know, and, and feel free to build in some expectations if that's a Trump administration as well, because trying to understand the ebb and flow is quite difficult given it's kind of been one-way traffic. So I wonder what, I mean, it could surprise to the other way. You could have a Trump administration that came in and tried to loosen the sanctions, you know, like it's hard to call. I, I think it is hard to call. I, I'd still stand with, with the prediction that I gave. I think the Republican Party has changed. It's become less of a, a pro-business or international business party. Uh, it's become more of a party that appeals to the working class. And in fact, um, uh, do you think of manufacturing laborers has become a battleground between the two parties, uh, which is why the China hostility is is so vocal in, in both parties. Mm. Uh, it's much of the reason why the Biden campaign and the incoming Biden administration was different in rhetoric, but really no different in policy towards China. Yeah. Um what do you, there's a bit of a discussion going on at the moment around going into the midterm elections. You know, there's a trade off between pushing a firmer line on, I mean, the discussion's mostly on Ukraine, but it applies to China and Taiwan as well. Um, you know, weighing that trade off between a firmer line on uh, sanctions activity and the impacts that that has to consumer price inflation and um, upon the American consumer at home. Do you, do you think? Uh, my sense is that that choice is being presented slightly dishonestly by some corners of politics. Like I think that the Republican agenda does appear to say right now, we're going to go really hard at Ukraine and high gas prices are Biden's fault. And like, that's just not fair. But my sense is also that it, it resonates in the American electorate. So do you have any thoughts on that? And like on if there is some way to drive a bit more reality into that 
discussion. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's there is no rule or law that says you can't pursue contradictory policy claims and political <laughs> campaigns. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I ex- expect the Republicans to argue both lines. And uh, uh, I certainly emphasize the uh, stimulus package enacted at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, uh, the one that's been criticized by Larry Summers and others as the cause of, of the inflation that we're seeing, uh, even though you know there is no single cause, and among the causes, it's certainly not an overwhelming one. Yeah, no, it's it's. I do feel like a bit for a bit for Democratic candidates in this context because I don't know what the response is meant to be. Like, if if the electorate is not receptive to the idea that there there is a inverse proportionality between how hard you can push on sanctions and consumer prices, then it doesn't really leave you anything to say as a candidate. Um, and I don't know how we get there. Yeah, I. Uh, it reminds me of Elizabeth Warren during the Democratic primaries when she was saying that everyone's going to have free healthcare and no one's taxes are going to go up. Like, like it's you know, like it's just not a real proposal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want, I just, I just think that would be helpful if the if the debate was able to factor in a bit of that trade off, but it but doesn't seem to be doing so right now. I, you know, I think it's it's very hard to do. It, actually more easily done in Europe with respect to oil and gas prices, where there is a sense of uh, neighboring threat uh, from the Russians for which the, you know, the, the higher prices, oil, natural gas prices are a temporary but important but necessary consequence. And there's something more visceral about there's something more visceral about being proximate to the conflict and knowing that the gas is coming through a pipeline that goes across the front into the other guys. T- <laughs> you know, like there's something right. really visceral about why how wrong that is. Yeah. No, I, I think the administration is just in a very difficult spot. Yeah, totally. It's very tricky. Um, what, uh, what, if any other sort of, you know, main issues do you think are important at the moment um, as pertains to Asia or, or elsewhere? Um you know, is it what? What are you sort of focused on in your when you try to read the tea leaves right now? Oh well, I'm mostly a macroeconomist by trade, and so I'm trying to figure out what's going on in China, um, how rapidly and how durably the economy is slowing. They're not going to meet their growth targets this year. Uh, consumer demand is very weak. That's been a product of the sporadic uh, zero COVID shutdowns, probably of other things as well. Property market is very weak. Um, uh, exports have been actually surprisingly strong, um, uh, but those will trail off as the rest of the world economy weakens. And uh, yeah, what do you think about the demographic headwinds that China is facing? Um, you know that were sown uh, in large part by the one-child policy, but there's a lot of commentary out there now saying that. Perhaps one of the reasons China is starting to push a lot more aggressively on these issues is that they've only got a short window before they start to really hit um, a really tough uh, demographic sort of time bomb um, where they, they're, they're, they're going to have the wrong percentage of their population above working age, above you know, in retirement. 
Is that something that you think will be impactful going forward? So the demographic headwinds are are inevitable, and they become really important in the next next few years, probably in the next decade. Um, the extent to which they they influence policy, I'm not sure. The, um, the Chinese are very reluctant to talk about demographics because they're reluctant to talk about the consequences of the one-child policy. Um, they and and the demographics basically the next twenty years the labor market are baked in. So there's there's nothing really that the, the country can do. Uh, the things that it can influence are um, oh, the financial sector and financial sector reform, which will lower growth in the in the short run. Uh, there are a variety of policies that affect productivity. Uh, probably the most important of them is the shift towards state control and increasing role of state-owned enterprises. Uh, which clearly have lower productivity and lower productivity growth than the rest of the economy. Um, you know, it's a balancing act in China. I think um, as the economy recovered strongly from COVID, they began to to take a number of steps they thought were necessary in the financial sector and uh, reigning in the the tech companies, I think they're swinging in the opposite direction now as, as growth falls so sharply. Yeah, it feels like something we're going to be talking about more and more. But you're right. It's it's so interesting how um, deliberately they avoid any discussion of, of this topic. It's like it's it's completely taboo. I don't think I've ever heard a Chinese bureaucrat mention the one child policy. <laughs> no, we um, we. <laughs> We tried, or I tried briefly, because uh, I was always interested in, in issues in the discussion to, to talk about demographics with, uh, with visiting delegations and was shut down immediately. <laughs> it's funny. It's, um, it's what um, Ambassador Borkas said to me once that, because I, I was asking him in an interview, like, you know, when you get into these rooms, and you got your five items. Like, what happens when you talk about Xinjiang or when you talk about Hong Kong or whatever? And he said they just don't care. Like, it, he said it's it's hard for for people who haven't sat in that setting to to understand. But because there's no mechanism for anything to be enforced on that topic, and that the discussions are bilateral outside the purview of some body which has authority, like. They just they just literally just ignore the question and move on, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I guess I have a more more sympathetic uh, conclusion, which is something like the discussions in those areas are unproductive and also dangerous for the person involved. So why would you go there? True. Yeah. 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 Uh, my experience: the most interesting discussions were very short, often with one person as you walked out of the room after a meeting or a discussion. Do you have an example of, a, of an interaction like that during your career that was, um, that's a good one to tell? Uh, I have two. Uh, I'll, I'll keep the sources anonymous, but um, <laughs> one was a question about would China meet its growth forecast? And as we were walking out of the meeting, the guy we were talking to said, well, yeah, 
I mean, they'll meet the growth forecast that they always do with the implication that they will publish numbers that meet just the, <laughs> the growth forecast. But, and the second one was... And that's true with any piece of economic data like that, Bob, <laughs> because we all we all hang our hat on non-farm payrolls and consumer price inflation all this, and none of us understand the survey methodology that goes into it. <laughs> so, like, obviously, obviously the Chinese can just put whatever number they want, just send an email to Bloomberg on the... You know, first Friday of every month. But um, sorry, what was the second one? They don't revise data. The second one was um, a series of reforms, reform proposals. It may have been in the thirteen part of the thirteen party Congress reforms. Uh, the, the was the market plays a major role set of reforms. Um, where walking out of the meeting, one guy just mentioned, "Well, yes." Those reform proposals are there. They're always there. We always repeat them. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a moment of candor. Right. Yeah, that's funny. I love hearing the stories about these sort of, you know, it's it's fascinating to people to hear what goes on in these sort of meetings, right? Yeah, no, it was really interesting. And I think it's the one of the great losses from the the I think now very limited to non-existent personal interactions, uh, uh, you know, meetings in person. So that sort of information flows in a tactile manner because it happens as you're describing. And you're saying that if if, we're, if there's less of that because of COVID and because of the deteriorating relationship, the opportunities for important things to slip through are lowered. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And you can't have it online. Is that because if it's recorded and everything? You can't have it in a Zoom meeting. People are cautious, yeah. I presume, yeah. I mean, I would I would be cautious. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Bob, this has been really, really helpful. Um, I think it's, it's great to get the perspective of somebody who's been involved in the discussions from the American side with China because I haven't had that yet on the show before. So I think it's, um, it's going to be pretty illuminating for people. Righto, that's the end of episode two. I know that was a long one, uh, but I thought that both those interviews were really good, so I wanted to include them almost in their entirety. Um, If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. It helps me get it out to a broader audience. And I'll see you next week for episode three. Until then, take it easy. Cheers.